Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Russian President Vladimir Putin called the U.S. dollar's drop in dominance, quote, objective and irreversible during the recent BRICS summit in South Africa as Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa formally agreed to use local currencies instead of the U.S. dollar. It's the first shoe to drop. As demand for the dollar weakens, the buying power of the dollar also weakens. That's why Birch Gold Group is busier than ever. Investors and savers are looking to harness the power of physical gold held in a tax-sheltered IRA. Text Monica to 989-898 for your free info kit on gold. Thousands of happy customers, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and countless five-star reviews, you can count on Birch Gold to help you navigate transitioning an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold. As the U.S. dollar continues to receive pressure from foreign countries, digital currency, and central banks, arm yourself with information on how to protect your savings. Just text MONICA to 989-898 to claim your free info kit from Birch Gold Group right now. Hey guys, I'm Monica Crowley, and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thank you so much for being with me here on this Tuesday as we begin a brand new week. Actually, the last week of August, heading into the informal end of summer, which I don't know. I mean, where did the summer go? (laughs) I have no idea. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. Don't forget to check me out on social media. On Instagram, I am at Monica Crowley underscore. And on Twitter and True Social, I'm at Monica Crowley. Also by email, you can reach me there. Monica Crowley podcast, all one word, Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com. All right. uh, Later this week, I want to pick up again with a what is going to be a recurring theme on this program out of necessity and out of uh, national survival, it is going to be a recurring theme. And that recurring theme is Barack Obama. And it's not just Barack Obama, but it's Barack and Michelle Obama and the entire Obama team, the entire Obama posse. And the reason that we are going to continue to keep our attention trained on them is twofold. One, because what we are experiencing now, this absolute communist nightmare, is Obama's third term. Joe Biden is just the empty suit figurehead for this, but Barack and Michelle and their entire crew, they are the ones running the show. So this is Obama's third term. So, of course, we need to think back to what he has done. 
remember what he has done in his eight formal years as president to explain what we're experiencing now and what we will experience in the future. Okay, so we began to do this over the last uh, week or so. We are going to continue to do it because, again, this is Obama's third term, but there's another reason we're going to keep our attention trained on him. And that is because Barack and Michelle want a fourth and a fifth term. They can maybe get a fourth term through Joe Biden, but if they want a fifth and beyond, they're going to have to look for someone else. And the only person that they can truly rely on to deliver that is Michelle. We've been talking about this for a very long time. We've had Joel Gilbert with his documentary, Michelle Obama 2024, on this show a couple of times. We'll have him back. Um, I talked about this at CPAC in, what, March of 2021. And now a lot more people are on the Michelle bus. But she is really the only reliable way that they can plow ahead. You know, they can't really rely on like a Gavin Newsom or a Mrs. Clinton. Uh, yeah, they'll be left wing and communist and the rest. But can they really rely on them to execute the way the Obamas want them to execute the fundamental transformation of the nation? Mm, not really. I mean, probably 90 percent of the time they will be aligned. But the other 10 percent, not really, because a Mrs. Clinton or a, a Gavin Newsom or someone else will bring in all of their own people as presidents have every right to do. Right. So they're not going to be able to execute in exactly the same way. Whereas if they ran Michelle and they won, they'd be able to keep in place all of the people who were there in the first eight years of Obama's term, who are there now, currently, like the Susan Rices who just left, but she's on the campaign. And that tells you another thing that they're probably going to run Michelle. They're, she's out there working with the Obamas on all of this, making this transition from Joe and Kamala to maybe Michelle and who knows, right? So in order to keep all of their personnel in place, Lisa Monaco at the Department of Justice, I mean, everywhere you look, it's the exact same Obama team. And then the ones who aren't there now will come back like the Ben Rhodeses of the world, okay? So, you know, you got John Kerry, you got the entire Obama crew running it now. If you had Gavin Newsom as president, God forbid, Newsom would bring his whole California crew and these are people that they that the Obamas might know a little bit or not at all. And then how do you control them? You can't really. And it would be a big mess for them. So this is why I am saying that they want a fourth and a fifth and beyond term for the Obamas. And the best way, most efficient way to do that in a way that they can control is by running Michelle. I hope I am wrong. I hope Joel Gilbert is wrong about this, but it may very well be the case. So this is why we need to focus on Barack and what he did in his eight years. You know, I wrote a whole book about this called What the Bleep Just Happened, which was published in 2012, and it was focused on Obama's first term and all of the horrors of that term. And then the second term, which I didn't write a book about, but that second term was even worse. It was even more of a horror show. And now here we are in the third term, which is a horror show on steroids.
So imagine what they'd be able to do in a fourth and a fifth term. This is why we're going to take this on because few others will. And it is absolutely necessary to remind everybody what Barack and Michelle did in the first go around and what they have planned for the future. We know what we're experiencing now. We can only imagine what's going to happen in the future if they get a fourth and fifth term. So we are going to take this on going forward. Okay. Now, next week, in addition to all of that, we are going to be joined by Kevin and Sam Sorbo. Kevin Sorbo has a new movie out. We're going to talk to him about that. And Sam Sorbo has been a big advocate of homeschooling children, which they did uh, with their kids. And she's been a really outspoken voice on this because the school systems, whether it's public or private, are an absolute nightmare in this country. The indoctrination is off the charts. Um, so we're going to talk to them about all of this. And I'm very excited about that. They are fabulous. Also coming up here on the Monica Crowley podcast in the weeks ahead, Matt Gates, Jack Posobiec, Larry Elder, Riley Gaines, and so many more. So really smart, fantastic voices are going to be here on the show, plus the news and analysis that you expect right here on the Monica Crowley podcast. Okay, as a way to frame today's very special show, a brief Monica memo. Parents' rights, do they exist anymore? Not really. And depending on where you live, you really don't have them. So if you are in the state of California and you're a parent, you're essentially stripped of whatever rights you think you may have. You send your child off to school early in the morning. They get on that bus or you drop them off. They're gone for what, eight, nine hours before the school system regurgitates them back to you and you pick them up or they get off the bus, however it might go. But you are handing your children off to the state or to a private institution. And you hope and pray that for those eight or nine hours that your child is in the hands of other adults, that those adults are thoughtful, responsible, smart, sensitive, and are not going to take on your parenting roles. But you know what? You'd be wrong. Now, in red states, it's obviously better. If your child goes to a religious school, like a Catholic school or a Jewish school, probably a lot better, probably have a lot more control. But if you're in a blue state and you send your child off, well, the state or left-wing ideologues in a private institution have control over your child to brainwash them and indoctrinate them in a whole range of ideologies from communism and Marxism through gender ideology. And so when your child comes back to you in the afternoon, they've had their brain loaded with a diet of communist nonsense destructive communist nonsense. And so you do your best to try to balance it out and try to counter it and talk to them and, and make sure that you and your family's values and your religious faith is countering what they're being taught when you're not with them. But it's a very difficult struggle, right? Well, listen to this. The state of California is now suing a school district over its requirement that schools notify parents if their children change their preferred pronouns or gender identity. The Chino Valley Unified School District 
requires that schools inform parents within three days of learning that a student seeks treatment consistent with a different gender than the one on their record. The state is now suing them because the state says that such a policy will potentially compromise the student's well-being. You know what's compromising the student's well-being? Cultural Marxism, which is what this is. California Attorney General Rob Bonta said this, quote, for far too many transgender children and gender non-conforming youth, school serves as their only safe haven, a place away from home where they can find validation, safety, privacy. We have to protect that, he said. The school district, meanwhile, says that its policy is not illegal and provides ample protections for students by requiring that cases in which the school believes a student may face danger be referred to law enforcement or social services. The Chino Valley Unified President, Sonia Shaw, said to ABC News, quote, we will stand our ground and protect our children with all we can because we are not breaking the law. Parents have a constitutional right in the upbringing of their children, period. Okay, so understand, first of all, the reason so many parents are awake now to what's going on is because of the pandemic and the fact that the unions, you know, basically shot themselves in the foot. The, the teachers unions wanted extended online at home uh, school. Right. So while the kids were at school for these prolonged periods of time, because teachers unions fought for that, um, parents became hyper aware of what their kids were actually being taught. And they didn't like it. Communism, socialism, gender ideology, all of this bull crap. That's what they are being taught. Parents finally got wind of that, saw it and did not like it. So all of this awoke a lot of mama bears and papa bears. And now parents are mobilized and they're speaking out at a school board meetings, which is why the DOJ, the Department of Justice has descended on these parents, treating them like common criminals or worse. Because they realize, holy cow, this backfired. Parents are awake now. We've awakened a sleeping giant. They're showing up, they're loud. They're drawing attention to what we're doing. We can't have that. So we've got to intimidate them back into silence. So activate the weaponized government to come forward and try to intimidate and quiet these concerned parents. All of this is now happening way out in the open because the communists now are completely emboldened because they've made so much progress and the country is at a tipping point. So. They don't really need to hide anymore, right? In fact, there's another uh, story on The Blaze and other outlets, Fox News, have reported this. But now in the state of Colorado, an openly Marxist teacher has now been voted in to fill an open state House of Representatives seat. The teacher has previously, again, th these are the people who take your children for nine hours a day and indoctrinate them, this teacher has previously called for a, quote, forceful cultural revolution against, quote, whiteness. His name is Tim Hernandez. He will now be a state representative in Denver 
after a committee of Democrats filled that seat after its incumbent, a woman named Serena Gonzalez Gutierrez, was elected to the Denver City Council. Hernandez previously worked at Denver's North High School. He made headlines last year after his teaching contract with Denver Public Schools was not renewed. As a result, students walked out in protest that he was not renewed. So the students were totally on board with the indoctrination and the Marxism. He said, Hernandez said, quote, the leaders of my school have labeled me as divisive and disruptive. The principal of my school has called me aggressive and attacking, coded language that is hurtful and detrimental to men of color. Mm -hmm. See, they always play the race card, the identity card. He was later hired to teach in the Aurora Public Schools District. The staff list at the school has since been scrubbed, and it is uncertain whether he continues to be involved in that Colorado school district. A sign in his classroom called for, quote, dismantling white systems. Fox News Digital previously discovered that Hernandez went on a Marxist rant during a protest organized by the unions. Quote, I want to tear some shit up for you. Are you ready? He said. He went on to say, what I think is happening in our schools, what I think is showing up in my classroom is a lot of the things that we get into ideological circles up here. We like to compete. Who knows Marx better? Who knows these things better? Who's a Leninist? Listen, all right, I'll give you a real take on this shit. Kids don't care, he said. Direct quote. Hernandez also mentioned that it was important to convert theory into actionable practice. This is Saul Alinsky, taking Marxist theory and making it actionable through community organization. Ah, the line to Barack Obama directly, right? Hernandez said, quote, yes, it's important to know theory, but you have to do some practices. You have to get out into the streets. You have to get into your workplace. You have to go to your families. If we are just sitting, talking in an ideological circle, our kids are still going to schools that are underfunded, where they are investing more in their failure than in their success. Your communist theory will not save you. The revolution, he said, will happen in the hood. It will not be led by who understands Lenin best. It will not be led by the deepest Marxist. The revolution, he said, will be led by the people. And I say all of this because I'm a teacher. In 2021, Hernandez called for a, quote, forceful cultural revolution on Twitter. Mm -hmm. His posts remain available, even though his account was suspended. He posted, if white people spent Half of the time they spend trying to distance themselves from their whiteness and instead spent it actually deconstructing systems of white supremacy, where would we be? And he goes on to talk about dismantling the system and replacing it with Marxism. Okay. The reason I'm talking about all of this to frame today's conversation is because the entire gender ideology, the gender superstructure that has been layered upon our society, layered upon our educational system, layered upon families and communities, layered upon our children, it is cultural Marxism. 
It is the cultural revolution. You don't think so? You think this is just a social contagion? Well, it certainly is that, but it's so much bigger and so much more dangerous. I heard someone the other day call it a fad. This is not a fad, guys. This is about Marxists getting in to destroy the nuclear family, separating children from their parents and their siblings, confusing them, indoctrinating them, destroying their futures so that they are very reliable and pliable standing armies for the left for the rest of their lives. That's what this is. So on an individual level, if you're being targeted by this message and then you are 8, 10, 14, 16 years old and you're hearing this and all of a sudden you become gender confused, on an individual level, what is going on? What is this madness? Well, today I also want to do something a little bit different on the show because this is a really serious issue. And because we have so many big serious issues coming at us, I don't really focus all that much on this issue on this show. We've done a couple of programs on this issue, but I really want to devote more time to it today because we've got a really special guest with us. You know, all across our country, There are atrocities taking place in doctor's offices, hospital operating rooms, and beyond. We have physically very healthy children and teenagers who are being permanently disfigured and sometimes even sterilized. These kids say that they've got uh, gender, they're in a gender identity crisis. They say that they are transgender. And everybody else in society, from their parents to their teachers to therapists to doctors, we're all supposed to agree with this self-diagnosis of children, and we're also all supposed to take a back seat as they choose to make the most consequential decision of their lives, which is to permanently alter their bodies to align themselves with who they think they are or who they say they are. But what is actually going on here? That is a much bigger question. So for answers, we're going to turn today to one of the nations and really one of the world's foremost experts on the transmania and the absolute evil of it because it is, in fact, evil, particularly when it is targeted to children. And the reason he is one of the world's most foremost experts on this is because he personally has been through it. He's got quite the personal story to tell. He continues on his journey, and he has chosen to share his journey with the rest of us as a way to warn against the transmania's dangers. He's made it his life's work, and he is an absolute hero to do so. Ollie London is a British K-pop singer, superstar, really. He is a TikTok star, a media presenter. He's an activist. He's a public speaker. He's a TV personality. He has been all over our TV over the last few weeks, including Fox News, Newsmax, Fox Business, etc. But he's also been across television shows across Europe and Asia. 
And his story now is even more well-known because he has decided to very courageously write a book telling his story. His new book is called Gender Madness, One Man's Devastating Struggle with Woke Ideology and His Battle to Protect Children. It is out right now. You can get it wherever books are sold, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, wherever you get your books. Also, please check out his website, which is also a phenomenal resource. It's Ollie, O-L-I, dash, London, Ollie, dash, London, dot com. And my friend, who I'm now very blessed to call a friend, Ollie London, joins us now. Ollie, Welcome. Thank you for such a lovely introduction and thank you for having me talking about such an important topic as well, Monica. Well, it is absolutely my pleasure and it's such an important topic and for a lot of parents and actually for a lot of children and teenagers, in many ways, it is the most important topic. And the reason I wanted to cover it and I've just begun covering the entire transmania on this show now, I mean, I, I'm usually covering foreign policy and the Chinese Communist Party and the weaponization of government against the American people. But this issue is a critical part of the Marxist revolution that we are experiencing here in the U.S. You are British. It is sweeping the U.K. It's sweeping Western Europe. The entire free world is now being subjected to this Marxist revolution. And it comes in so many different forms. The transgender movement is part of the Marxist revolution. And that's why I want to cover it and you, of course, are the leading voice on this. So let's get into it, Ali, because, um, first of all, I am blessed to call you a friend. We had lunch together and, and met for the first time last week in New York City. You are an extraordinary person. And uh, your courage in speaking out, I mean, y you have been a major social media star. You continue to be, but also a British K-pop singer. You, you were in the entertainment world massively famous, huge following. Um, and then when you decided to go down this gender path, you know, you got more accolades and more validation. And then you switched course and decided this was not for you. And you've made enormous sacrifices in terms of your career and everything else. And we're going to get into all of that in a moment. But I want everybody to know that so that they understand you're coming at this from a point of tremendous credibility. So let's begin, Ali, with, um, well, let's really start with your story so that everybody is aware of what, where you began and the process that you have gone through to get to this point. So you grew up in the UK. Um, you're a happy child, I assume. And then at what point did you start to question your, uh, um, your gender identity? And, at w and, and what were the forces weighing on you at the time? So I had um, issues growing up. I, I lived in a beautiful part of the English countryside just outside London, but I always had issues with questions of my identity. So when I was around five years old, for instance, I used to play with girls' toys and Barbie dolls. And I also, I grew very attached to my mother. I saw her as my role model. And I also grew very detached to my father. He was very cruel and callous to my mother and also the way he treated me. And for, for instance, when my mother gave birth to me, he actually abandoned her for one week. So he just left mm. her without reason. 
And so it was always a very strained relationship. And my father always tried to mold me in his own image. Um, he wanted me to be a clone of him, uh, to be masculine. He would try to take me camping, outdoors, hiking. And I just wasn't interested because I, I didn't want anything to do with him. So I was always close to my mother and doing girly things. And then as I became a teenager, I was very outcast and very lonely. And when I went to um, high school, I was very much uh, picked on because I was different. Um, I was more feminine. Also, just the way I looked, I had very severe acne. Um, so I used to get bullied a lot for my skin. Um, and that really made me withdraw. And that was a really pivotal moment around age 12 to 13. And I think this is a pivotal moment for most teenagers. You know, you're going through puberty. You're struggling with questions of yourself. You're trying to understand what are all these changes going on and you've got nobody to explain it to you. So you know, I went through that and I always remember very vividly when I used to go to swim class, that was just horrifying and so traumatic. So I used to get teased and bullied. People would say I had man breasts or, or women's breasts because I had extra fatty tissue on my chest. I also used to say I looked like a pregnant woman because I had, you know, I was a little bit chubby. So that really, really weighed heavily on my mind. And uh, eventually into adulthood, I actually cut off all the fat from my chest. And it was the most painful, horrific surgery I've ever done. And I very nearly died during that operation. And so really, there were a lot of factors. So the relationship with my father, I tried to be uh, as different to him as possible. I wanted to change myself beyond recognition. So I had no attachment to my father. And then also I had these feminine traits and attributes. And you know, as a teenager, I questioned my sexuality. I, you know, I was starting to be confused. And, you know, I, I thought I was attracted to guys. So that also made me question my gender identity. I thought this is not normal. Why am I attracted to the same sex? Maybe I was meant to be a girl. So I always had these questions. Then in adulthood, that's when everything kind of changed. And, um, you know, I, I moved to South Korea, which is the uh, surgery capital of the world. And I had this um, a tremendous pressure to want to change because I felt, you know, I'd been rejected my whole life. I had no validation. That was when the journey really began. You know, Ali, as you're describing the childhood and the reaction uh, to your father and the closeness to your mother, it strikes me as you're talking this through that perhaps a good therapist could have intervened or a good uh, faith leader could have intervened with you to walk you through all of this confusion and sort of guide you spiritually and emotionally so that you weren't you, you didn't feel so isolated and you, you didn't feel so lost and confused. Did you have any of that kind of support? No, I didn't have that at all. And, you know, I do wish I did, because if I would have, for instance, as a, a young child for my um, first school, for elementary school, we did actually go to a church as part of the school. Um, but then once I got to high school, you know, I wasn't interested in that. And um, my father was very anti-religion. So he was actually atheist. So he basically told me there's no such thing as God. So, you know, I, I went along with his beliefs because I was scared of him. So, you know, so I didn't have that option to continue going to church. And I, I had so many fond memories as a very young kid at elementary school when we used to go to church. You know, Easter egg uh, hunts. I used to love the Christmas carols. So I had beautiful memories. But my dad kind of was very strict anti-religion. 
So that really uh, pushed me away from that. So I had no kind of person to speak to, like a faith leader or even a therapist um, to speak about these problems. So I kind of withdrew from the world and I kind of bottled up my problems. I didn't talk about them. And then, of course, in later life, I kind of acted out and tried to change myself beyond recognition. So I didn't look like my father. And so, you know, I could become a different person. And, you know, I wanted to prove these bullies wrong, that I could be beautiful, that I could be validated and 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 unique. So, no, I, I do wish I had that. And I think that's what a lot of kids are missing these days because kids are going to social media or they're bottling up their feelings. They don't have that outlet. They don't have a therapist or a priest to speak to that can guide them through this journey. Are you an only child? Um, so I do actually have a sister. And throughout all of this, where was she? Was she supportive? Was she helpful? Was she a sounding board for you? Um, to be honest, I mean, I really did struggle with these things and I bottled it up because I was trying to be tough and brave for my mum because, you know, we were so preoccupied. My father would shout at my mother every day and, you know, try to put it down, try to make her feel worthless. So we were so preoccupied with that until my father eventually left us, you know, one day um, when I was an adult. So, um, so my sister didn't, she had her own struggles as well. So she didn't see what I was going through. And, you know, mm-hmm. I was just very withdrawn and I would, you know, try to uh, make myself sick. So I didn't have to go to school. And my mum was, you know, she wanted me to be educated, right? So she would uh, persuade me to go to school and stuff. And my father was like, you better go to school. You need to get a degree and, and things like that. So you know, I never really spoke about these things um, with my sister. You know, when there is family strife like that, children also also tend to take on the roles of adults um, because the situation around them is so adult, Um, whether they're children of alcoholics or children of drug addicts or children of divorce, or maybe the parents stay together, but they're constantly fighting and there's one abusive parent or two abusive parents, whatever it might be. And in many cases, children will Um, not only assume the role of parent for the weaker parent in the situation, but they will also try to perfect themselves so as not to add a burden to the weaker parent who might be struggling. So, you know, to to earn their love, to earn their validation, or simply not to add to their plate of burdens, right? So in retrospect, do you think that maybe that was part of it? Well, I didn't want to add a burden to my mother. So I did, you know, have to grow up very fast and kind of, you know, face the way my, my dad was treating me and face the way he was treating my mother and stuff. So I, I, I had to grow up fast um, because I didn't want to burden my mother with all these things. I didn't want to burden my sister. So I think that was probably part of the problem that I didn't speak about these issues, that I didn't speak about these. You know, I had very severe body dysmorphia and um, so I started to have the very severe gender dysphoria. And I didn't speak about it. I just thought, you know what, I need to man up, as my father would tell me to do, and, you know, try to bottle it up and try to be tough. But, you know, as I became an adult, that kind of toughness cracked and I just gave in. I was like, you know what, I need to change myself because this is the only path to happiness. It's the only way I can erase any memory of my father. And, you know, this is how I felt for many years. You know, I've been told by so many bullies that you're a girl, you're feminine or you're ugly. So that really, you know, spurred me to kind of, have that moment and just start to change. You know, children are so suggestible. You know, a child hears things and then begins to question things and then decides, well, in order to be lovable, in order to qualify for love in any form from a parent, from a sibling, um, from a romantic partner, I need to perfect myself. 
And in some cases, that is plastic surgery. In other cases, it's changing their gender, etc. But children hear things, they absorb it like sponges. And unfortunately, now we have all of these social cues that move you into uh, certain, uh, down certain paths um, that are extremely damaging and dangerous. And I want to get into that with you as well. So pick it up from there, Ali. So then you're in South Korea, surgery capital of the world, and you start undergoing some procedures. Can you talk to us about how that evolved? So I was age uh, 23. This was back in um, 2013. And um, so it was the first time I'd really been on my own. And I was in this completely new world. You know, Korea was very advanced with technology. Everything seemed so perfect. It seemed like such an ideal and happy world. So this was the first time I really felt a sense of escapism. I could escape my problems. I could become somebody else and I could improve myself. So, you know, there was a lot of um, billboards wherever you go in Korea, TV advertisements, advertising plastic surgery. It's just a part of daily life. And I, I questioned it. I thought, you know, maybe there's a chance that I can improve myself and then that will somehow make all of my problems go away and somehow I'll wake up from the surgery and be a completely different person. I'll be completely happy. And all of those past issues and traumas will be gone. Um, so, you know, I just started having, I uh, had a nose surgery to fix my nose because I was really severely bullied because I had a very big nose. It was very crooked. So I used to get severely bullied. So I started out with that. And then once I did that, that surgery actually didn't go well. So I had to get a correction. Then it became a snowball effect, which I talk about in the book is, you know, just like somebody getting a tattoo. Once you do something that you feel is giving you that kind of self-improvement or value, you start to do it more and more. So over a period of 10 years, I then embarked on very dramatic surgeries. You know, I had a jaw surgery. I had two chin surgeries, three facelifts, three eye lifts, six nose surgeries, um, facial feminization surgery, which was 11 procedures in one day. Mm. Um, So I really... I was I was trapped in this world and it was always a temporary fix, just like all of these teenagers now that, you know, maybe they get on hormones or puberty blockers or when they start to transition and have surgeries. You feel great for a couple of months because you have everybody around you affirming you, validating you, telling you how amazing you look, how you know fantastic you are with your new identity. So you have that positive reinforcement. And when you're missing that, I lacked that positive reinforcement throughout all of my life. And many people do these days. So when you're missing that and you suddenly get it, it kind of feeds into that addiction. It feeds into that, you know, I need to improve myself even more. I need to, you know, push further along my identity transition because um, you know, people are finally validating me. So that really played a huge role for me. And I know it does for many young people that, you know, simple need for validation. You know, you use the word addiction and it's so true. I mean, people, whether it's plastic surgery or or drugs or alcohol or shopping or gambling, once you get that dopamine hit of uh, you know, the, the slew of compliments, those slew of compliments can't last forever. So you get them early on, maybe when you've had a surgery and, you know, people are like, you look dynamite, right? But then eventually over time, they move on with their lives. They're taking care of their own problems and their own issues. So the compliments sort of uh, peter out and you want more and more of it. So you undergo another surgery and another surgery because you want to keep refreshing that sense of validation, correct? A hundred percent. And also social media for me, 
uh, played a huge role. I know that is one of the driving forces in people wanting to change themselves because of validation. So, you know, back in the day, I was age 16 years old and um, people might remember a thing called MySpace. It seems something so ancient now. That was one of the first, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was one of the first um, social media platforms. And I remember at 16, I was at college. I wasn't bullied as much as college at college, but I still had these traumas from high school. Um, so I took to MySpace and I, you know, I created this almost different person. You know, I was this popular person on MySpace. I had followers. I had people giving me validation. And that was a huge dopamine and serotonin hit every single time. So I kind of started to develop that kind of need for that validation via social media. And of course, now we have Instagram and TikTok. And I've been on Instagram for 10 years and um, TikTok since since it launched around 2018. So, you know, that really did drive my identity crisis to the next level because, you know, when you're a young person that has never felt good about yourself, you've always felt worthless, you've always questioned yourself, and suddenly you can go online and get that serotonin hit and everybody is telling you what you've been longing to hear your whole life, that really does reinforce the behavior. So, you know, that certainly drove my behavior. And, you know, also part of the struggle, which... I did and many young people do is they share it online. They go online as an outlet to share their transition journey. And, you know, that gives them validation. It gives them reinforcement. And the funny thing is when you declare your new identity, when you become transgender, um, you get so much praise and, and reinforcement. And that is a very dangerous thing for a young person that doesn't have that in their life because it spurs you on. And also you can't escape that momentum because once you're in there it's very difficult to kind of uh, tell yourself actually I've made a mistake and I need to reverse course because now you have the whole world watching you and you know if you turn back on you know your identity these people are then going to turn on you so it's a, it's a very difficult situation I think social media plays a devastating role in many young people's identity struggles these days. Yeah, absolutely, because it's being used as a weapon against children in particular, but also teenagers, young adults as well. And when you and I were having lunch, we were talking about the case of Caitlyn Jenner. And uh, I hope to have Caitlyn on the show um, at some point. Caitlyn Jenner, you know, everybody knew Caitlyn Jenner as Bruce Jenner, Olympic superstar, setting all kinds of records, a premier uh, global athlete, right? Um, so the whole world knew Bruce Jenner. And then Bruce Jenner uh, comes forward um, much later in his life and says, look, I've been struggling with these issues of gender identity my entire life. And I've been through therapy. I have really reflected on this for many, many years. And I've decided that I am going to undergo this process and become more of who I believe I really am, which is to be a woman, present as a woman. It's one thing for Bruce Jenner to make that determination as a grown adult, right? I mean, I think Bruce Jenner, like, was in his 50s or 60s, early 60s maybe. I don't know. I could be off on the age, but he was certainly a grown adult making that decision as an affirmative decision to go through this process and make that change and live the life according to how he felt he should live it. And my view is, God bless, if you're an adult and you want to go through that, the problem here is that these 
kinds of things, uh, th- these kinds of messages about gender confusion, gender dysmorphia, uh, uh, transgender issues are being targeted to children in many cases all the way down to preschool and kindergarten. That to me is where the crime comes in. That to me is what is fundamentally evil about this entire movement. Can you speak to, because, you know, you began as a, as a, really as a child and then a teenager, et cetera, to question all of these things. You were an adult when you began the process, but you were a child get, getting all of these kinds of, uh, different kinds of messages that, that led to questioning. Can you talk about the targeting of children? What is going on here? And talk about, because you and I use the word evil at lunch, and, and I'm, I'm heartened to hear you say, yeah, this is evil targeting children. Talk to us about that. Yeah, you made a great point there. I mean, there is a distinction between someone that has felt a certain way their whole life and they're an adult and they've had many years to reflect. And, you know, it's still a very difficult decision for them to go through. There's a complete distinction between that and someone that is young, someone that is vulnerable, and you know, mostly kids, but there are also vulnerable adults that we're seeing a number of people that are being confused and then they're detransitioning when they've been pushed into it, even as adults. So I think it's all about informed consent. And I think a lot of people these days have no informed consent from doctors. They have no idea of the long-term consequences. They don't even have the psychological evaluation. So I think that's something that is a serious problem. And then, of course, we have the issue of transitioning children, which is inherently evil, absolutely evil. This is one of the crimes of the century. And we're going to look back in five years' time, hopefully less than that, Monica, and we're going to say that this is one of the crimes of the century, taking away the innocence of children. It is abuse, cutting off a child's breast, a 15-year-old girl's breast, telling her this is the only way she's going to be happy in life. That is a crime against children. And I pray one day that the world wakes up and stops this because it really is gender madness because children can't consent regardless of what these doctors say. Firstly, there's no long-term data. They try to sell you the story. This is helping prevent child suicide. Regardless of what doctors say, they are destroying healthy young children. These children are going to have to live with the consequences for the rest of their life. And the doctors don't even tell them the struggles they will face. And We have to look at it, Monica. This is a mental health crisis and many young people are being misdiagnosed. So we have uh, autistic children are six times more likely to be diagnosed with gender dysphoria. We have children suffering with schizophrenia, with bipolar, with depression, with suicidal tendencies. They are far more likely to be misdiagnosed or I would say misdiagnosed. And doctors see that these kids are going through something. So they say, oh, yes, they must be trans. Let's get them hormones and puberty blockers. That is a real crime. So basically, this gender industry is basically targeting the most vulnerable children, uh, children severely autistic. They are now being transitioned. Not only that, you also have, you know, people when they say, you know, it's homophobic or transphobic to speak up about this. These people are actually the transphobes and homophobes because, you know, some kids are just going to be gay or lesbian and they're questioning their sexuality, but they're being told suddenly that they're trans. And I had that feeling as a teenager, I was questioning my sexuality and I really did believe that maybe I was meant to be a girl. So imagine growing up now when you're 12 and you have these feelings, then suddenly the doctor says, you are definitely trans. We must transition you right now. So it's a crime against the century. And like you said, it it, it links in with Marxist uh, doctrine because, you know, we don't see any of this in China. Have you ever seen a trans child in China? Have you ever seen any 
LGBTQI plus propaganda. This is destroying Western society. It's only happening in Western countries and it really benefits China. It really does because, you know, we look at the explosion of TikTok 2018 and of course you had the pandemic all at the same time. And that's when we saw this rise in gender ideology and confusion. And predominantly most of these people are on TikTok and they're sharing their gender transitions on TikTok. So it really is inherently evil and it is the crime of the century. And it really has been weaponized. You're exactly right about this. Uh, the CCP controls TikTok. Um, it is a highly controversial app. I know you were a superstar on there. You remain a superstar, but I know you, you take a look at it with a lot more skepticism now. Um, but it has been weaponized in order to infiltrate and destroy Western societies by destroying children, um, by helping with the indoctrination of children, and also with the destruction of the nuclear family to separate children from their parents. Children will sit in their rooms for hours on end on TikTok, on other social media platforms as well, but specifically TikTok, and not have dinner with their parents, not communicate with their parents. Um, none of that. They're, they're isolated and they're hearing messages from strangers. You know, you talked about the validation that you would get from strangers on social media. You don't know these people. You don't know who they are. They could be CCP agents for all you know, telling you, you look fabulous. Can keep going, keep going. In many ways, you know, this is a spiritual battle. And I think about the image of the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other. And social media is really the devil whispering into children's ears, teenagers' ears, adults' ears. Um, this is not who you are. You're something different. You're something else. Go and do it. Go and do it. Pushing, pushing, pushing. It really is a spiritual battle, is it not? It is. And, you know, every child, when they're going through their teenage years, they struggle with acceptance. They struggle with identity. So when you suddenly have somebody praising them online or pushing this, and like you said, great point. We don't know who these people are. Some of them might not be the people that they perceive online. You know, they could be fake. They could be accounts managed by someone in China, you know, because it really does benefit China when we have the West is so preoccupied now with gender. The nuclear family is breaking down. There's no more, you know, very limited number of alpha males. And there's very, you know, feminine roles and masculine roles in society have been broken down. And it's really within the last five years. So TikTok and the pandemic kind of coordinated this attack on Western society. And, you know, kids are extremely impressionable. So if you feed a child idea, for instance, if you feed a child ideas with an algorithm that manipulates um their thought processes that changes their perception of things and pushes identities on them. That's why you're seeing so many kids, um, you know, transitioning and they share it all on TikTok. And you start to see they start with doing something. Maybe it's a boy. They want to become a girl. They start doing a little makeup. Then they get more views and validation. And then suddenly they do something more extreme, hair extensions, and then maybe the hormones. And, you know, they, they see this pattern of, you know, the more they do, the more they continue on this trans journey, the more validation and praise they get, the more views. So it's like a, um, sorry, it's like a reward system. So TikTok is rewarding these kids for transitioning, giving them views. And, you know, around 25% of kids these days, they don't want to be a doctor or veterinarian. They want to be an influencer, right? So this is really a huge part of the culture. And it really is like an angel and devil situation. So on the one hand, social media can be great at connecting us with our friends, but it also has that kind of evil uh, apparatus to it where it specifically targets children and tells them that they're not good enough. 
So not just transitioning, but with, you know, we're telling kids they're not good enough. We see filters and photoshopped images of celebrities all the time. We see almost a facade of people's real lives. So most of the stuff we see online is not even real. It's not the reality of this person's life. So, you know, children are being missold a dream and this trans agenda being pushed on them is a false facade. It's not a real facade because, you know, these uh, TikTokers, you see them smiling, someone like Dylan Mulvaney, successful, millions of followers, you know, brand deals, they're wearing designer clothes. Kids are going to look at that and think, I want to become like that because Dylan seems happy. They're smiling all the time. And you know, when I was trans, I was smiling all the time because you you convince yourself that you're happy. You convince the world that you're happy, but you're really not inside. So, you know, I think children are being missold a dream. And I think um, the CCP is hugely, hugely benefiting from this. Okay, Ali, this is absolutely fascinating. I'm going to ask you to please stand by much more with Ali London, the author of Gender Madness, coming straight up. Sit tight. Okay, we are back with Ollie London. His new book is called Gender Madness. What about the role of parents? I mean, I know a lot of kids do not have functional uh, homes, loving homes, uh, two loving parents. They may have one parent, maybe it's a single mom who is really stretched to the limit, working a couple of jobs to keep food on the table. She is not focused or the father's not focused. Or maybe, you know, they're just, these kids are adrift. Um, or maybe they do have an intact home and the parents are just not focused on their kids and consumed with their own stuff. Who knows? But what about the role of parents, um, siblings? Can they intervene at all? What what advice would you give to parents to um, focus on this from an early age before it becomes an issue? Because you have said that this is a social contagion, right? So how do parents who are involved... And, and and what advice would you give to kids who maybe don't have a firm family structure to resist this, to identify the pressures before it gets out of control? I mean, it really is very difficult to be a parent in this modern age. And, you know, parents have their own things going on in their lives. And sometimes, you know, an easier option for them is just to hand their child a phone or an iPad just so the parent can have like a bit of respite and they can do something know that they need to do so you know i think um parents kind of give in to children as well because kids can be rebellious they all want to be on their phones they all want to be on tiktok so i think it's about having parental controls in place and you know maybe for instance telling the child you know you have a limit of one hour a day on social media and also the parents being able to access what the child is looking at i think for things like tiktok and instagram just to protect the kid because i don't think kids should be on it but some parents, I don't, you know, I think their kids are going to rebel if they're not on their phone because all their their kids their kids are on the phone. So, you know, I think it's a difficult situation, but I think parents need to really keep an eye on what's going on. I don't think kids should be on TikTok. I think that's the most harmful thing. And even Instagram can be very harmful as well. So, you know, there's that. And also to kind of find the signs early on. I mean, parents really need to keep a close eye on what's going on at schools because we see kindergartens, preschools pushing gender ideology on kids, the drag story hours. You have a library books pushing sexualization on kids, um, using transgenderism as a guide to push that message. Um, so I think parents need to be 
extremely aware, keeping an eye on what's going on at school. And it's also difficult because some kids do come from broken homes and that's when they're most vulnerable. So we see in places like Colorado or um, Washington State, uh, basically they can take kids into foster care and then transition them. So they don't need anyone to sign off on these transitions. So that is very alarming to see, you know, these vulnerable kids from broken homes being taken advantage of. And that is also one of the reasons why some kids do transition because they are from broken homes and they want attention, they want love, and they're missing that love. So they turn to transgenderism as that outlet and they are taken advantage of by, you know, I'm going to call them predators because if you take advantage of a child, you manipulate them, you sexualize the body, that is a predator by definition. Um, So I think, you know, for those children from broken homes, I think we need to give them more mental health support and stability um, through therapy, through whether that's faith leaders as well, um, give them a sense of community and belonging. Um, uh, you know, going to like uh, school uh, school workshops, art classes, things like that, you know, extracurricular activities that are going to keep that child on the straight and narrow. Um, and then for parents, yeah, just keep an eye. And if you see any differences in your child, go immediately to the school, speak to the teacher, find out what's going on, because we have uh, situations with schools uh, in New Jersey, Colorado, other places that actually transition kids without the parents even knowing. So parents need to pay closer attention. I think we should be focusing on mental health. There should be a huge investment. Uh, Unfortunately, Biden's not going to invest in that, but we need a huge investment in mental health to avert this crisis and protect kids before they're pushed down the the wrong path. Yeah, you know, the mental health issue is so important. And we basically started this conversation, Ali, by uh, me saying, you know, a good faith leader or a good therapist may have saved you from this very traumatic journey that you've been on through, you know, your your life. Um, and you have come around, thank God, and you're using your voice now to warn others. How did you come out of it? When, when did you sort of have an epiphany that the road that you were on was very destructive and it wasn't actually who you were. Well, it was a very destructive path. And I finally started to realize that when I just pushed myself to so many extremes. I mean, you know, I had 32 surgeries over a 10-year period. And the real kind of thing that I did was I had 11 facial feminization surgeries in one day. I wasn't able to open my eyes for three days. You know, I wasn't even able to talk. I wasn't able to eat. So that was like that gave me a bit of happiness for a couple of months because it was almost like a form of self-harm. You know, I would do the surgeries to, um, you know, punish myself that I was worthless. So I, I deserve this. I deserve to go through this pain. So you know, I, I went through that and then it was, you know, a few months later and I was starting to consider this is really an endless path. I'm just on a, you know, a, a, a train track that is about to go, you know, a train that's about to go off the tracks. Um, and do I stop? Do I put the brakes on or do I continue down this path and risk my life and further risk upsetting my mother and my friends around me? Um, But it was hard because I had so much validation. And, you know, when you become trans, I had so many designers wanting to dress me front row at every fashion week in New York and London. Um, So you have that validation. So it's very difficult to come out of that situation. But I just realized that this is very self-destructive and I'm never going to be happy. That was the realization. I'm never going to be happy and satisfied no matter what changes I do, no matter what identity I have, you know, whatever gender I am, I will never be happy. So I need to fix myself internally. That was when I finally started to do therapy. And I also finally started going to church. Um, Now, after all those years since elementary school, um, when my father kind of got rid of 
any kind of belief system from me. So that was very, very powerful. And it just made me realize that, you know, there's firstly, there's more to life than changing all of your identities and find happiness from within. That is the key message here. And that's the message I'm speaking about in the book. And that's what I want to encourage young people to do, because we don't need to go through these changes. We don't need to change our pronouns or gender identity to feel good about ourselves. Let's just work on ourselves from within and find that happiness from within. And one of the most amazing things that um, becoming a Christian has taught me is that, you know, that this is that we live in a crazy world, but we all have a part to play in this world that we can help people. So, you know, that inspired me, the teachings of Jesus, that he was so selfless and Every day he devoted his life and, you know, he gave his life for us and he gave his life up to help others. That's, you know, the person in a leper colony. He went to cleanse them when nobody else would go near them. So that is a beautiful thing. And that really inspired me to realize, look, I have a platform. I really struggle with identity. I need to use this platform for good. I need to help kids. I need to help others because I've been through hell and back with what I've been through. And, you know, I've nearly died several times on the operating table. And I don't want kids to go through that. I want kids to know that they are good enough as they are. I want parents to know that, you know, kids do not need to change. Just let kids be kids. Let them grow up. And, you know, we should be encouraging people just to learn to love themselves. It is such a blessing of a message that you are delivering. And I have no doubt that God is using you. Um, in this way, Ali, and your journey to faith um, and to Jesus and back to God is such an important part of your story. Because as we said, we use the word evil to describe all of this. I want to thank you for that. This is a spiritual battle. It's good versus evil, God versus the enemy, however you want to characterize it. And the role of faith does play a major part in dealing with this madness. So I do believe that God is using you. Do you feel that, Ali? Absolutely. But I think God has a purpose for every single one of us. Um, and I think, you know, we all discover that at different points in our life, some earlier than others. I obviously discovered it age, um, you know, 32 last year. So I discovered it later in life. But we all have a purpose in this life. And that's the really key message here. But God, it doesn't matter how many followers we are, whoever we are, whatever we do in life, we can all make a difference. So even if it's just helping one person, we can all make a difference. So I think that's the key message here is, you know, speaking out against things that are affecting others, raising awareness for, you know, the lives of kids, the parents, the mothers, the women. Let's speak up for everybody because we can all make a difference. And and that's why, you know, writing my book, Gender Madness, was so important. And I really believe this book is going to help so many people. I want to encourage people to change their mentality, to, to teach them, though, no matter what struggles you go through, whether that's gender, whether that's, you know, struggles with self-worth or identity, you are perfect the way you are, you know. Find that happiness from within and use your time and energy to help others because that gives you so much purpose in life. I mean, that has given me purpose, a renewed sense of purpose that waking up every day, getting up early and helping people, raising awareness, speaking to parents, speaking to women's athletes that are struggling with biological males in in women's sports, speaking to different people and thinking, how can I help these people? And, you know, I had a a beautiful story um, the other day um, when I was in Fox Business, uh, Dagan, the host, um, she posted about this uh, dog charity in Georgia and basically they were going to close down because they really had no money. They couldn't even feed the dogs. And um, 
So she posted that a couple of months ago and I saw it and I had started a campaign on Twitter and Instagram. And, you know, I got all my followers and I also donated to raise enough money to save the shelter. So, you know, Dagan told me I'd saved about 80 dogs lives the other day. Oh. And that was a beautiful thing. And, you know, we can all make a difference, whether it's saving one person's life, whether it's uplifting someone, giving someone a compliment, we can all make a difference. Oh, and I really do believe that that is the message. And I believe that God has given you this platform, you know, that he allowed you to become such a star um, in terms of music and acting and social media so that you would have those built-in platforms so that when he brought you to this point of healing and reflection and wholeness, once again, to who he made you to be, that you would have these massive platforms to deliver exactly that message, Ali. So um, final thoughts here on how we save our children. Are you optimistic that we can turn this evil around and that all of this mania will eventually burn itself out? Well, I think knowledge is power and speaking up is power. So I think we need to be informed of what's going on so we can have a better understanding of how this is affecting children and how it is targeting children. So, you know, that's why my book, Gender Madness, is very key in this because I really have done so much research on how children are being targeted. I've used my own insight from what I've been through, how school systems are pushing woke indoctrination, how TikTok algorithms are affecting kids. So, no, I think knowledge is power. So, you know, reading my book, Gender Madness, and reading the resources out there that are discussing this, we need to have an understanding before we can know what we're fighting up against. Um, so I think that's important. And I think, you know, everybody should speak up because, you know, there's a lot of people that are scared of cancel culture and this is how these trans activists operate. They try to silence and degrade people. So you see the transitioners, they're only 18 or 19. They're speaking out incredibly brave. They are bombarded with hate daily to try and silence them. And it works in many cases. That's why we don't see many detransitioners speaking out because the stigma, they are, you know, dis disowned by their own community, the trans community, outcasts and treat them as heretics. So we all have a duty to speak up for every one of these kids, regardless of what these trolls or trans activists try to say, however they try to silence us. We need to persevere. We all need to speak up now. We are seeing a turning tide. I've got a whole chapter about that in the book, Turning the Tide, because we've now seen 20 U.S. states pass legislation to ban gender-affirming care, as they like to call it, uh, for children. We've also seen the U.K. ban puberty blockers. Sweden and Finland have reversed uh, their advice on transitioning kids. So we are seeing a turning tide because people are more aware than ever. You know, these stories do dominate the news headlines every day because it's it's become so severe and it's impacting so many people. But you know, we need to raise awareness. Knowledge is power and speaking up is the key thing here. Amen. Amen. Ali, the book is called uh, Gender Madness, One Man's Devastating Struggle with Woke Ideology and His Battle to Protect Children. It's available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you get your books. Please go get it. It will be one of the most important books you will ever read, whether you have children or not. You have to understand what is happening society-wide and actually worldwide. This is a war for our children. And it's got an ideological dimension. It's got a political and cultural dimension. It's got a spiritual dimension. And you need to arm yourself with the truth about what is happening. Ollie's book, Gender Madness, is such an important work. 
um, to getting all of us to understand what's happening here and arming us with the tools we need to fight back. His website is Ollie, O-L-I, Ollie-London.com. So please go check him out there as well. Ollie, I want to thank you so much for your time today, your friendship, but more importantly, for your courage and your moral conviction. God bless you. Thank you, Monica. God bless you and God bless everybody listening. And, you know, keep on fighting for children. Thank you. Thank you. God bless. Okay, guys, that's going to do it for me today. Thank you so much for joining me and for checking out our great sponsors. As always, have a good start to your week. And I will see you right back here with another huge show on Thursday. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.